Welcome to the Lead Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Barron. I'm obsessed with helping people feel more connected to themselves, the people they love, their work, and their purpose. I'm a leadership coach, speaker, self-improvement junkie, wife, mom of two teenagers, and 30-year corporate career woman turned entrepreneur. This podcast will give you the tools, insights, and real honest conversations that will help you lead your life so you can love your life. Let's dive in. Hello, my friends. It's been a while since we've been together. It's been about seven weeks. And for those of you that are with me week after week, you know that I'm very consistent with the podcast. I'm here with you every single week. And for those of my friends that are new to the podcast, this will be a very different podcast than my typical podcast. And the reason why I haven't been here and the reason why I have taken a hiatus is because my husband has passed away, my husband, John Barron. And I have not really been able to, nor have I wanted to record an episode. And I just haven't been ready to. I think I'm ready now. I have no idea. (laughs) We'll see if I can get through this episode. I guarantee that I will probably choke up and cry at some point. Um, But this is my story. I have committed since the very beginning of this podcast, to be honest, to have authentic conversations with you and to talk about life and leadership and how those two are intertwined. And today isn't going to be so much about leadership, but it is going to be about life. And I don't have any agenda for this podcast. I don't have any notes. I don't have any lessons. I don't have any script. It It's just me sitting down sharing my thoughts with you. It's been really an important part of my grieving process to share who my husband was with the world. And... I find it so helpful when someone that doesn't know him asks me questions and and wants to hear his story and my story, but more importantly, wants to know more about him and who he was. And I, I hope you'll indulge me while I share with you in this episode who he was and what an incredible, incredible beautiful human being he was and what he meant to me. And I hope you'll get a a glimpse of the legacy that he left behind and the deep, powerful, amazing love that we had for each other. And my hope is, is that through me sharing the story of who John was, that hopefully you'll be inspired because he was absolutely an incredible, inspiring human being And he had so many incredible lessons for all of us. So I'll start from the beginning, and I'll start from his beginning. My husband was born in 1945. So yes, we were 25 years difference in age. But what I'll share with you is it never felt like that. We just always felt like we were on the same page. We had so much in common. And he was so youthful and fun, and 
He loved life. So he was born in 1945, and he grew up in a Hispanic and Jewish family, and he grew up very poor. He struggled in his childhood. His dad was very abusive, and he had a very, very difficult childhood. And he actually left home when he was 15. He just had to get out of the house. He remembers growing up with without a lot of food. He lived at one point with his grandparents, and his grandfather was in uh, he worked for the railroad. And part of the railroad's requirement was to provide housing for the Hispanic workers. And his dad or his grandfather and his grandmother, lived in a caboose car in the middle of the desert. And John lived with them for a while. Um, or the story goes, I think he would run away from home to his grandparents' house a lot because of the abuse that he suffered as a child. And he remembers uh, not having shoes at some points in his childhood. He was sent to school. Um, he didn't always go. <laughs> he would sneak out. But he would also... Um, speak Spanish at home and school was taught in English. So he missed a lot of kind of basic foundational education. And he actually didn't know how to read until he was in high school. And he couldn't even read that well. Because like I said, ever all the education was in English. And he struggled to keep up. And he also suffered from dyslexia as well which made it really, really tough for him. So he left the house when he was 15. He got a job at a grocery store and he got his own apartment. And I remember him telling me that he would go to work all day and he would just come home to sleep and then go back to work. And a lot of times he didn't have money for food. So he would, he would, you know, eat some of the food that was being kind of thrown out from the grocery store. Um, he had a very, very tough life. He had a skin issue when he was a teenager and he was sent to a dermatologist. The dermatologist, after several visits, decided that his issue with his skin was actually psychos psychosomatic and sent him, recommended him to a therapist. And it's there where he met his therapist, Dr. Joe Rosner. Long story short, Joe Rosner was John's therapist for many, many years, kind of took took John under his wing and became a father figure for John in many ways. And Joe Rosner absolutely without without a doubt saved saved John's life. And he taught him so much and uh, just really, really helped John so much. Um, encouraged him to go to college. John really didn't feel comfortable going to college, but enrolled anyway and still had trouble with reading. So he would use a dictionary to write next to his textbook. And so anytime he was reading his textbook and he didn't know a word, he would look it up in the dictionary. And he said when he first started, he was looking up words, almost all of the words. And it was really difficult for him, but he made it through college. He ended up getting a master's degree and he became a therapist and he became an amazing therapist and very well known in the LA area 
and had a very successful practice, but not in the beginning. It, it took him a while to get established. He did a lot of pro bono work. He worked for Jewish, Jewish Big Brothers. Um, he himself, when he was a kid, experienced a lot of racism. And therefore, it really empowered and encouraged him and, and gave him inspiration to, to help others who were maybe marginalized. Um, he, he did so much. It's I, I could go on and on and on about all the amazing things that he did for the community and and did for you know low income workers and just he helped the community so much in such a substantial way. Um, got married. He had two kids, Lisa and Rachel. And I met John when he was my therapist. And that's a whole long story in itself. But my ex-husband introduced us um, because we were having some marital issues. And my my ex-husband had known John from a previous relationship that he was seeing him for. And um, I knew John and was in therapy with John for about 14 years. Ended up getting divorced. And a couple years later, like I said, it's a long story. And um. But the bottom line is, when I started dating John, I prior to dating John, I should say, I, I never believed in the concept of a soulmate. I believed that you could deeply love several people in your life because I had. And um, I didn't believe that there was just one person out there for you until I met John. And from the night we had our first date, I tell everyone it's it's like I was coming home. The the first time I kissed him, the night we went out, it literally felt like we had been together forever. And we talked about it all the time that our our love was just easy. I I had struggled so much in my in my previous marriage and it was just, it just always, it was easy sometimes and we had a lot of fun together, but it just always felt like it was such an effort. And with John, things were effortless. They were beautiful. John was so romantic. He would leave me notes everywhere. He would do the kindest, most thoughtful, most thoughtful things. And Um, He was so giving. He was just giving on such a deep level. And the thing that he gave the most was his full 100% presence. He would walk in a room, he'd be on the phone, he would hang up the call. He never brought his cell phone out to a meal. He, if you walked in a room, he would turn the TV off. He was dedicated to being 100% present with you whenever you needed him and whenever anyone needed him, whether it was myself or the girls. And he came into the girl's life when they were eight and 11 and he helped me raise them. He helped me raise the girls through their teenage years and he was always present for the girls. The girls had an amazing, connected, beautiful, loving relationship with him And they just, (laughs) 
in the in the speech at the funeral, um, my oldest daughter Hannah said that they were co-conspirators together. And the cutest thing is, is that they always felt that way with John, but he always did the right thing. Um, he wasn't trying to be their best friend. But going back to to John's upbringing and his education and his difficulty reading, I think once he learned how to read, he never put books down. And that was a big part of who John was. John read over about 20,000 books throughout his life. And I know that because I have about 15,000 of them right now that I am having to work through and figure out what to do with. Um, So if anyone listening knows anyone that sells on eBay or Amazon, please let me know because I think I have enough books to open a bookstore. But he his books were like his babies. He traveled through those books. He, he gained so much wisdom and insight and he did it in service of others because he was always striving to learn more. He had an insatiable curiosity about people, about places, about food, about life. He always wanted to, to learn and to grow and to be a better person. And he was always helping everyone who was in his circle to do the same. John was an incredible therapist. And when he passed, I had the the very difficult job of calling his clients to to let them know that that he had passed. And it was really difficult because um, he didn't share with his clients that he was sick. And I'll, I'll get into that in a minute of what his diagnosis was and how all that happened. But one of the most beautiful things throughout that process is his clients sharing with me how he saved them. He saved their marriages. He saved their family. He saved their businesses. John shared so much wisdom with so many people and he made an incredible impact in this world. I had one client tell me and share with me that there should have been an earthquake when John Barron died because the world just seems a little shakier and a little less stable now that he's gone. And that resonated so deeply with me because because of who John was and because of who he was in this world and it's so interesting because he never set out to he never set out to be famous, he never set out to be powerful, he never he he was always the person that made whoever he was speaking to feel important and feel like they were in the spotlight. He never wanted any attention for himself. He was so very giving in that way. But he lived a life of deep service and deep meaning and deep purpose. And his purpose was very clear that he was here to help others. He was here to make others' lives better. And I think the lesson that he taught me and I think taught, tried to teach others is that we can make other people's lives so much better just by hearing their story just by paying attention intently about what they're going through 
and just being there for them. I remember he asked me once if I knew what the meaning of true love was. And of course, I, I answered him with all the common things that one would say, you know, romance and being giving and being loving and being compassionate and being understanding. Um, and he said, yeah, I mean, those are all part of it. But he said, the real true meaning of love is to be heard and known and accepted for exactly who you are. And that always stuck with me. And it's what I try to carry forward in my life and also my coaching practice. So John and I started dating about 10 years ago. And we, in September, would have been married for eight years. And I remember when I first started dating John, like I said, it felt like I was coming home. It felt like he was my soulmate. But I was concerned about our age difference. And I remember asking my best friend, Denise, you know, what should I do? Should I, should I move forward? And I remember her saying to me something really powerful and so true. And I'm so glad I listened to her. She said, you know, Natalie, you're, you're so worried about what's going to happen to John. You know, something could happen to you. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow. You could get breast cancer. You know, you have no idea. All we have is today. And if you have found this type of special love, why wouldn't you move forward? Even if you had two years with him or five years or 10 years or 20 years, wouldn't it be better than having 30 or 40 years with someone that was just mediocre? Why not have the best two years or the best five years or the best 10 years of your life? And I'm so glad I listened to her because with John, I had the best 10 years I have ever had in my entire life. John made every day exciting. John made the mundane super fun. He would he would make cleaning fun. Um, he would, when the toilet paper would get to the end of the roll, he would leave me love notes on the cardboard. He would send me texts when we were working in COVID, well, even before COVID, he would literally send me pages of text all day long telling me how much he loved me and how much he appreciated our relationship. And if we had talked about something the night before, he would check in with me to see what I was thinking about it. Uh, he was also the person that supported me in making my career move. He supported me emotionally, financially, physically, in every way. He was there while I built my business he never stopped believing in in me. He never stopped believing in the kids. He he pushed he pushed all of us in such a gentle but loving, powerful way to be better and to do better. And he changed all of us for the better because he made us believe in ourselves. At the funeral Hannah shared during her speech, she said, John saw people for who they were. He met them where they were at but he could see in each person the amazing scope of their potential, whatever that potential may be. I think he was truly the most encouraging person I've ever known. And it made me think of what a beautiful legacy that is for someone to leave. That someone could see the beauty and uniqueness in each person and push them toward affirming their own potential without being attached to or trying to control whatever that potential may be. 
And it's so true what she shares next. He had a genuine joy for other people's happiness. And it's so true. When the people in John's life were happy, he was ecstatic. That's all he wanted is he just wanted everyone to be happy. He wanted to give and give and give until until he saw that everyone was just happy and content and they had what they needed. He was the most giving person I have ever met in my entire life. And so now I'll share with you kind of the story and I'll take you through the timeline of what happened with John. John was in great shape. John, for his entire life, essentially, was a very clean eater. He didn't eat sugar. He drank his coffee in the morning. He would pretty much fast all day long. He was kind of doing intermittent fasting before intermittent fasting was the thing. And he would have just a very lean, healthy dinner. So he was extremely fit. He was super healthy. He never, he, he didn't like to eat any processed foods, no sugar, n- not a lot of carbs, al- although he did like his morning scone occasionally. But just in general, just cared so much about his health. He had prostate cancer 23 years ago, went through surgery, was cured, and was cancer free. And life was great. We had just basically, we were new empty nesters. Uh, Bailey had gone off to freshman year um, at college and we were having so much fun. We were having a great time being empty nesters. But things started when we had dropped Bailey off at college. John wasn't able to join us for dinner because he, he wasn't feeling well in the hotel room. And he said it felt like he kind of had acid reflux and something was stuck in his throat. Um, and he was kind of in a lot of pain. And so he took some antacids, you know, figured it would be okay. But it stuck with him for a day or two. Went away, happened on and off for the next couple of months. And then at Thanksgiving, he was really sick and didn't feel well. And I said, you know, honey, I think you should go for a physical. I, I You're obviously not feeling well. And um, you know, I think you should get checked out. So he did. He said, you know, I have a physical the next week. I actually had my, uh, I was working on a consulting project. I had my first business trip in two years, three years, two and a half years. And I was flying to Florida and he was going to the doctor to, for his physical that day. He found out the news, um, but actually chose not to share it with me because he didn't want to quote unquote, ruin my trip to Florida because he wanted me to have a great meeting. So I got home the next night. It was December 2nd. And I said to him, hey, how did your physical go? And I was just anticipating that they were going to say, hey, take some antacids and everything will be fine. And he said, yeah, I got my results back. Um, I had to do, I went in for my physical. My doctor suggested I go for a barium swallow. And I have cancer. And I will never forget hearing those words come out of his mouth because I honestly couldn't believe it. I I couldn't believe that he had cancer. Um so as you can imagine, we we both fell apart that night. Well, I should actually say I fell apart 
he, from the time he got diagnosed with cancer, was so strong and so incredibly brave. I I think I might have seen him tear up a couple of times while he had cancer. And it's not because John was unemotional. It's because he was strong and he was accepting. He always lived a very Buddhist life and he accepted whatever happened in the minute, in the hour, in the day, in his life. It was just who he was. The only reason why he got emotional when he had his cancer is because he said he didn't want to put me through going through cancer with him, which obviously from my perspective was ridiculous. I was going to be with him no matter what, and I was going to help him through whatever he had to go through. So as you can imagine, December was kind of a blur. Um, it was a lot of diagnostics and a lot of doctor's appointments. And we finally found out that he had esophageal cancer. He had a tumor at the base of his esophagus where it met his stomach. Um, we had incredible, incredible doctors at Cedar sinai And he had a chemo-oncologist, Dr. Hoffman, who basically said, look, I will manage your entire care. I will manage all the doctors that you need to see and all the communication. And I remember feeling so relieved that someone was going to be helping us through this process. I felt so supported by Dr. Hoffman and his team. And it was just an incredible experience from from the get-go. So he had recommended to us that John go through six weeks of chemo and radiation which started at the end of January. And we were told, which was true, that chemo radiation would probably be okay for the first couple of weeks. And then it would start to catch up with John. And it did. John never missed a day at work. He worked all through chemo and radiation. His clients never knew he was sick. He had to change appointments here and there for doctor's appointments. But the amazing thing about John and, and our relationship is we had to go to radiation every day. So we drove from Simi Valley where we live about 45 minutes every morning to radiation five days a week. And then on Mondays, he had chemo that lasted about five or six hours. So Mondays were a full day pretty much. And <laughs> we were the only people that would be giggling in the radiation waiting room. We would be telling jokes and we would be laughing. And every morning we treated going to radiation like it was a date. We we just made the best out of every day because at that point we just didn't know how much time we had. At the end of chemo radiation, they had told us that the cancer had resolved and that the tumor was gone. And we were so hopeful. And um, they had sent us to City of Hope for an evaluation because they did say that to basically, obviously, there's a lot more to the story. But, you know, for preventative reasons, it was going to be important for him to have surgery to 
remove the section of his esophagus where the cancer had been. We saw a surgeon at City of Hope, and that surgeon looked at John's scans and said, I actually think in addition to esophagus cancer, I think you have stomach cancer. I'll never forget that day um, because we had so much hope. And I, I think this story, you know, I share it because I think the cancer journey can have so many hills and valleys and it's so unpredictable. And if you or someone you know has cancer, I'm sure you can relate to what I'm sharing. It's just one minute you have hope and the next minute you're deflated and the next week you have hope. And it's just this emotional roller coaster that honestly is exhausting. And that's what happened to us. Um, So the doctor said he wasn't sure. And the crazy thing is, is that on a PET scan, um, and I didn't know this before, that's why I'm sharing it. On a PET scan, when you have a PET scan, if you have cancer, it, it lights up, it glows And nothing in John's stomach was glowing. It didn't appear that he had stomach cancer. But this doctor had amazing experience and went in and did a biopsy. And um, prior to the biopsy, the thought process was that they would remove John's stomach. And so he would have a full gastrectomy. I didn't even know that was possible to live without a stomach, but apparently it is. And they were going to connect John's esophagus to his intestines um, and remove his stomach. And that was going to be the cure for the cancer. Um, We knew that we had limited time, but after a pretty honest conversation with his radiation oncologist, Dr. Caitlin Atkins, who is also at Cedars and is absolutely amazing. Um, You know, she said, realistically, you probably have a couple years. And it was obviously, each time we got this news, it was just so tough to hear. So the doctor at Cedar at City of Hope actually went in, did a biopsy, looked at John's stomach, and we got a call that John was no longer a candidate for surgery because the cancer had spread outside of his stomach. And I'll I'll never, I'll never forget getting that call because I knew it was bad. And I knew that our lives and his life was significantly changing. And I knew that time was slipping through the hourglass even faster than I had expected and that we had expected. So we got the call that he was no longer a candidate for surgery. And so the plan was to start chemo again, to at least keep the cancer at bay and prolong life as long as possible. And again, we thought that we had a couple of years. And then, you know, John never shared anything with his clients because he thought he had a couple years left and he didn't want to worry his clients. He didn't want to make the story become about him instead of about his clients. Um, so he did it out of a spirit of generosity and, and giving, and he didn't want to inconvenience any of his clients. Um, so he was still working full time through all of this. He was tired. 
He would take naps in the afternoons. He would go to bed early. And I just saw how the cancer was wearing him down. But on the weekends, he still wanted to take our dog Sadie for a walk on the beach. We still enjoyed going to restaurants. Um, Eating became difficult for him, though. A lot of things would upset his stomach. um, And he had a lot of consistent, just kind of low-level pain in his throat and his esophagus. And it was hard. I, I know he would he would share with me that he was sick of being sick. And I remember one time I said to him, you know, to hell with cancer. You know, we're going to beat cancer. And I remember he, he kind of slept on that. And then the next morning we were driving to radiation or chemo. And he said, you know, I thought about what you said. And I've decided that instead of being mad at cancer, I'm actually going to be friends with cancer. And I'm not going to fight cancer. I'm going to live with cancer. And I'm going to make peace with cancer. And that was just who John was. John had the most amazing mindset and ability to be accepting that inspired me to be better because it was hard for me to be accepting of his cancer. Not once during his cancer journey did he ever say, why me? Why now? Why us? Why is this happening? He never once became a victim to the cancer. And I was kind of just blown away by that because I had those feelings. I had feelings of like, why now? Why us? Why him? Why is this happening? And while they didn't stay or I didn't hold on to them, I definitely felt that way. So anyway, moving forward, John was supposed to start chemo to keep the cancer at bay. He was going to do a second round of chemo. And he went in for a Moderna booster, his second booster on May 2nd. And he walked out of that, that appointment and um, he almost passed out. He wasn't feeling well. He was having a reaction. He started uh, being really nauseous, lightheaded, dizzy. He started throwing up. And so we thought he was having a reaction to the Moderna booster. And the nauseousness he, and the throwing up started basically that day and stayed consistent for about four days. And finally, begrudgingly, he agreed to go to the hospital. Um, He was actually trying to finish a half day of clients on Thursday, May 5th, when I took him into the hospital. Um, But he was literally doubled over in pain. His stomach was hurting him so bad. And by that point, he hadn't eaten anything in about four or five days. Um, So he was very lightheaded. He was pretty weak. And he had already lost a lot of weight from chemo and radiation. And so the doctor advised me to take him to to Cedars. We went to the hospital. And I didn't even pack a bag because I just thought he has something wrong with his stomach. It's going to be okay. He's going to be fine. We're going to come home tonight. And his hospital journey did not start well. It They 
said that he had an obstruction in his in his colon and that if it if they didn't put a tube down his nose into his stomach to relieve his his stomach and his intestines from working that his colon would burst and he would pass away um it took them 45 minutes to get this tube down his throat and it was awful john is someone who can handle a lot of pain and he was screaming and i was there holding his hand um it was traumatizing to watch and it was traumatizing for him and he was in a lot of pain consistently in the hospital and each day things kept getting progressively worse his organs were starting to shut down he went in for surgery he went in for procedures they tried to put stints in his liver ducts and it was just one thing after another uh we were there four days and at that point i called my best friend pia and i said um I just broke down and I just said, you know, it's not looking good and I don't know what to do. Um, I was by his side the entire time and I was advocating for him. John was such a huge advocate for everyone else. And I, I never felt like I could ever give John as much as he had given me. And I felt like this was my time and my opportunity to really, really give him back that advocacy that he had given to so many other people. And so I was talking to doctors on a daily basis and managing his medication and knowing what he needed and making decisions and on and on. And each day, like I said, things got worse. Pia flew in. She was amazing. I just called her just to tell her how I was feeling. And an hour later, she texted me saying, I, I, I arrive tomorrow in, to LAX. I'll take an Uber. I'll meet you at the airport or I'll meet you at the hospital. I'll just be there. And later on that afternoon, I called the kids and told them to come to the hospital as well. So Hannah came from San Diego. Bailey came from college. And so the first four days I was there by myself. And, and after that, it was the six of us consistently in that room. I don't think we... We really didn't leave that room. The kids left to go to sleep at night, but I stayed by John's side. And like I said, each day after meeting with probably at least seven to 10 doctors per day and um, things just weren't going well. And John was more and more incoherent. But what was consistent about what was happening is how much pain he was in. And he was in a lot of pain. He was moaning and just crying out my name saying, you know, honey, pain, I'm in pain. Um, and each day, like I said, he was kind of less and less physically there. I knew he was mentally there, though. And there was one night where he was agitated in bed. Um, and John was not an agitated person. John was the most patient person you'd ever meet. And he was just agitated. He kept getting up and getting down and he couldn't sleep all night. And I had told the nurse about it. And so the next day they did a CAT scan and a doctor came in and said, you know, we have the results of the CAT scan. And we had always had the meetings in the room 
with John, even though he was fairly sedated by, by this time, it was day six. And they said, you know, we'd like to talk to you. And they walked me down a hallway and it seemed like the longest walk I've ever taken. And they walked me into a small conference room. And I also put John's daughter on speakerphone. And there were a doctor and a social worker. And there were five women in this room. And the doctor had shared with me that the reason why John was agitated was that the cancer had spread to his brain and they didn't think that there was anything that they could do. They were going to be checking into it. They were meeting with a, a surgeon, a neurosurgeon, but their advice was to put him on hospice. And I'll never forget getting that news. Um, I just felt like time was just a vice and it kept squeezing in on both of us and it was awful. So as a family in that room, we talked things over, we asked questions, they sent in a hospice specialist. Her name was Laura and I'll never forget Laura. Laura was an angel and an incredible human being and she walked us through the process and what to expect and timing and we were trying to figure out if we should take John home or if we should keep him in the hospital because they had in-hospital hospice care for him and by the end he he hadn't eaten in 12 days and they had finally put up his nutrition um and he was finally getting food. And on day seven, at 10 a.m., we made a family decision to uh, take down his food and to put him in hospice and to transition him into the next phase and to get him stable enough to take home. And we were trying to figure out nursing care and how we were going to transport him and we really wanted him to be home with us. We wanted Sadie to see him. And I just knew. I just knew that he wanted to be home. And none of us had gotten much sleep. And his daughter, Rachel, was there to see him. She drove down from Berkeley and um, got to spend some time with him. And... By this time, I actually hadn't slept for about 36 hours and I hadn't left the hospital. And so the kids left and Rachel left and actually my business partner, Lori, had come to visit as well. And everyone left around 11 o'clock. And when everyone left, I noticed that John's breathing started to just be slightly different. So I called the girls and I said, hey, are you guys st still here? And they said, yeah, we're down in the parking structure. I said, I think you should come back up. I just have a feeling, 
I don't know. It was just a gut intuition feeling. And um, they came back up and John's breathing started to be more labored and more difficult. And I had checked in the, the nurse to make sure he wasn't in any pain. And I had asked her, I said, you know, what, what does this mean? There was just so un, so much uncertainty through through every day that we were there. And um, she said, you know, it, it means the end is, is near. I said, well, what does that mean? Does it mean 12 hours or 48 hours or a week? Like, what does this mean? And she said, no, he's close. And I, I remember John telling me that he had a client, obviously for confidentiality reasons, I didn't know their name, but he had had a client who was a young client who had cancer and her family didn't want her to go. And she had her family call John and put him on the phone while she was in the hospital. And she said, you know, John, please tell my family to let me go. And so John had instructed his family to give her permission to go. And um, so the girls and I, we told John how much we loved him, how much we appreciated him, what an amazing human being he was. And, we, and I, I gave him permission to go. I told him that I would be okay. <laughs> I told him we would be okay and that he didn't have to fight anymore and that he didn't have to be in pain anymore and that it was okay for him to let go and um Hannah and Bailey and I we all held his hand as he struggled but as he took his last few breaths and um it was really hard. There was also, I don't know, just something also beautiful in the same moment. I felt like when John took his last breath, I felt like he breathed strength into me and into Hannah and Bailey. And we sat with him for I don't even know how long, maybe an hour, and we shared memories and talked about him and mourned him, and it just all seemed really surreal, and, uh, and then we packed up all of our stuff. We had been there for a while, and we packed up all of our stuff and we left at three in the morning, two thirty in the morning, something. We got home around three a.m. and it just felt so surreal to come home without him. And there's not a minute of any day that goes by where I don't think about him. And. Honestly, you know, life has been a blur since he passed, but I'm doing the best I can 
to do what I know that he wanted for all of us, which is to be present and to be accepting and to love and to cherish each day that we have, each day that we have on this earth, each day that we have to enjoy the beauty of what Mother Nature has provided for us. In fact, John was so amazing. I would be in the kitchen washing dishes or cleaning up after dinner, and he would always say, come, come outside. And I would say, you know what? I, you know, I'm busy. And he'd say, no, 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 come, come outside. And probably about four or five, six nights a week, he would show me the sunset. And he would make sure that I took the time to enjoy the sunset. He would make sure that I noticed the flowers that were in bloom in the spring. And that I would smell the fresh scent of lemons, of the lemon tree that he grew in our front yard. And he was just always present to the wind and the breeze. He would he would comment on how soft the breeze felt today. And so since he's been gone, I've been trying to be present to the beauty and to what's left. But the grieving process is hard, and I will talk about that in a whole other podcast episode. But, you know, John left us with so much, and what he left us with is who we are. And what he left us with is he filled all of our tanks so full that it's hard to feel empty after his passing. He left so much goodness behind. He left so much beauty and change and meaning and purpose and lessons. And I had the difficult job of calling his clients afterwards to tell them that he had passed. And the most beautiful thing has happened out of that experience. Not only was the funeral filled with a lot of his clients, most of his clients, but they've reached out and they've shared stories and they've wanted to connect to to just talk about him and to share who he was to them with me and to share their stories and how he's transformed their lives. And it's been this amazing experience that we share together. And I appreciate you listening to this podcast and to having me share John's story because, like I said, it's not only helpful for me, but I hope it's inspiring in some way to you. One of the things that John John did, um, and I've shared this with several people, and actually Hannah or Bailey talked about it in in their speech at the funeral, was that when the kids were younger, he would get both clients that were children and my own children to talk by taking them to frozen yogurt. And people have asked me, you know, what can I do? How can I support you? And what I've said is you can carry on John's legacy by taking someone that you care about to frozen yogurt or to ice cream and to just sitting and having a conversation and to just being present to to your family, to the people that you love, 
to the people in your life that mean so much. Because while we're so busy accumulating things and titles and cars and wealth and what John taught me and anyone that came into his presence is that the biggest thing that we should be accumulating is knowledge that we ideally should have an insatiable curiosity that we should be appreciative of nature and that the thing we have the least of is time and time is so precious and all anyone in our life wants from us is our time and our presence and our attention and my vow and my commitment is to pass on John's legacy by carrying on those lessons with the people in my life and the people in my practice and my friends and my family. And I hope you find inspiration to do the same. Um, things have not been easy. We had a, an amazing funeral and, and a memorial for John and um, he lives on in each of us. And so many people have said that they have John on their shoulder and they think about him and, you know, what would John say? What would John do? What, how would John advise me? And it's, it's just inspiring to me that he touched so many people. He left a very big legacy behind and a legacy that will live on in individuals and families for generations. He's changed the trajectory of so many lives and he's touched people on such a deep level. John passed away on May 13th of 2022. I will miss him every day of my life. But even if I knew what the ending was, I wouldn't change the beginning I would do it all over again in a heartbeat without a question, without hesitation. My only regret is that he had to suffer so much at the end. And I wish I could have done something to help him. And I, I am glad that he's not in pain anymore and I'm glad that he's at peace but I still wish he was here every single day. I miss, I just miss him so much. And the crazy thing is, is that John is still giving to each one of us, even after he passed. And what that looks like is um, for Christmas and Mother's Day and Valentine's Day and all the holidays, um, I always told him that I just wanted cards. And so he went crazy <laughs> and he would buy like 15 Valentine's Day cards or 16 Valentine's Day cards. Um, I always tried to beat him, but the competitive part of me, but the funniest part is, is that he would always win. He always had more cards than I did. And he always gave the girls card, cards as well. And obviously the girls gave him cards for Father's Day and holidays. And what we're finding 
is that on the back of the cards that we gave to him, he's written notes to each one of us. And not just one, but many notes. And they're beautiful. And they're so meaningful. And he's left letters for each one of us in different spots. So we don't find them all at once. And I'm sure I haven't found them all yet. But as we continue to go through his things, we keep finding these beautiful, beautiful messages that he wants us to hear. And so even after he's physically gone, he's still supporting us and still loving on us in such a beautiful way. So... I hope you will continue on this healing journey with me. I appreciate you listening to my story and to our story and to John's story. And I hope you got an opportunity to to know him and to know us a little bit better. And I hope it inspires you to do something, to make a decision about what you want your legacy to be. And on that note, my friends, be good to yourselves, be compassionate with others, and I look forward to seeing you here next week as we live and we grow and we learn together. So I hope to see you back here soon. Take care and bye for now. Thank you so much for being here today and listening to the Lead Your Life podcast. My invitation to you is that you do one thing today to move toward a more meaningful, fulfilling life for yourself. Today, you have the opportunity to challenge your mindset or have a meaningful conversation or take one action step towards your goals. So what are you waiting for? It would mean the world to me if you would subscribe and leave a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. I look forward to connecting with you next week. Until then, don't wait till tomorrow. Be your best self now. Thank you.